This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 78. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreau. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 78 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com. Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio-Technica. Got another great show for you. If I can muster the uh, the voice power to get it out to you, it's, it's actually nighttime right now when I'm recording this, and I usually record the shows in the daytime. It's well after 10 o'clock. And to those that normally listen and know that uh, I drink just a boatload of coffee... I'm not drinking coffee right now. I'm actually drinking some green tea. I know it's sacrilege. I'm drinking tea and not the coffee. Anyhow, yeah, just I didn't have a chance to record the show in the daytime this week, and it's time to record the show, and it's nighttime, so I had to I had to jump on it. So here I am, fresh cup of tea next to me. Mm-mm. It's good. Not as good as coffee, but I thought, you know, it's after 10. Maybe I shouldn't have a cup. Just maybe. Anyhow, it's going to be a great show. Nonetheless, coffee or no coffee for uh, for right now, I have on Mr. Chris Dugan. Uh, Chris is an engineer and producer that lives in uh, Oakland, California, here in the Bay Area. And he's worked with uh, such bands as uh, U2, Iggy Pop, Green Day, Smash Mouth. Let's see, he's also worked with producers Rob Cavallo, Butch Vig, Bob Ezrin, Jeff Saltzman, and... He's won a couple Grammys, one for uh, Best Rock Album of the Year for Engineering Green Day's 21st Century Breakdown. And 2011, he won the Grammy for Best Musical Show Album for Engineering Green Day's American Idiot, the original broadcast, cast, original Broadway cast recording is what I'm trying to say. And he's chief engineer over at Jingletown Recording, which is owned by Green Day. So Green Day, the common denominator there. And... Anyhow, so he's worked with Green Day for a while, worked at the studio for a while, and uh, occasionally tours with the band. And uh, it's also a family thing. His uh, wife, Mari, uh, works over at Jingletown as the studio's manager. So, yeah, nice little uh, family operation going on there. So uh, Chris Dugan coming up. So, um, you know, I was talking with uh, Jules from Gear Sluts. Occasionally, Jules and I check in with each other, and uh, he offers up... uh, you know, his point of view on uh, uh, the show and how things are going and suggestions. He's he's always got a lot of really good suggestions. And, you know, it's kind of like calling my big brother and saying, what do you think? How are things going? What would you do? Got any ideas? And uh, he's always got a lot of really good ideas. He said, you know, I'd really, for I, for him personally and for, for the audience, he thought it would be interesting, not normally on a podcast, would you really care about this? But he said... You know, you really should take uh, the audience through the process of how you do the show, you know, how you record it, all the, you know, the particulars of that. I thought only on an audio podcast would anybody care about that. So I thought it was a really great idea. So I'll tell you, this is what I'm doing. So right now I'm in my mix room here at home and I'm sitting in front of a uh, Audio-Technica BP-40 and running that through my setup, which my setup is comprised of, uh, I've got a couple Apollos, an Apollo 8P and an o- older Apollo Firewire. And I've got, uh, uh, what do I have here? I have an Apollo Twin sitting next to me controlling the uh, the Apollo 8P. 
And anyhow, I plug right into the uh, Apollo Twin uh, because it's close. And, uh, you know, I could, I guess I could plug into any of them, but I just chose to plug into that one. And I'm running that through, let me go check here. I'm looking at the, uh, the Apollo console and I'm going through the Neve 1073 preamp. And today I'm trying something a little different. I'm actually trying the, um, the Summit TL, TLA100A uh, plug-in. This is all in the UA console. So this is a Summit compressor on there. So that's going straight into Personas' Studio One, which, you know, I made the switch some time ago, primarily mixing, doing the podcast, whatever other work I have. Generally, when I'm at other people's studios, I'm using Pro Tools. But anyways, we're not going to get into that. I'm recording it, running it into here. Um... And then some people are curious, you know, or is there any other processing that goes on? You know, there's some EQ uh, that happens. There's a, a cool plug-in by my buddies over at McDSP. It's called the SA2 that uh, that goes on in, uh, in, in a post-production type of manner. And my laptop is sitting here next to me, and it occasionally is making a little fan noise like it is right now. So I employ the RX dialogue denoise in the chain to kind of clean up afterwards and then follow that up with a, uh, uh, an LA two way plugin. Once again, from UA that's followed up by a retro limiter from, uh, McDSP. So that, uh, that's the, the chain there. And then, uh, that all gets mixed down through a stereo bus, uh, which actually has a manly very and a, uh, UA, uh, precision limiter. Yeah. And then, so what I do is I, you know, record the show. I record uh, the monologue in the front, uh, the sponsor break in the center, and the uh, tail end bits. Take the recording of the show uh, with the guest, which is, you know, always, I've always got my audio, and then I always have to wait, like, you know, Chris sent me his version of the, or his audio to uh, edit. And I combine all that together, assemble the show. That's all done at 2444. And then I send a 16-bit 44.1 version out as a as a WAV file as a mix, and then I uh, have another program. I hope I'm not losing you all. I know some of you are like probably getting glossy eyed at this point, so I'm wrapping it up. I promise. Then I have the Codec Toolbox Manager from uh, Sonox, and that allows me to add all the metadata, the WCA logo, and all the you know. Like, like I say, the metadata, all the particulars about the show. So when if you're on iTunes and you hit Get Info, you should have some bits of information, the guest and the year and stuff. And then that goes up to um, a, uh, a server from a company called Libsyn that hosts all the audio and provides all the statistics of downloads and number of downloads and all that. Then I, then I take that uh, link, put it in the, uh, the website, put in some you know, a uh, copy, a uh, bio from somebody and a little bit of what we talk about in a picture and hit publish and that's it. Boom. Then you hear about it. Maybe you hear about it uh, from Facebook where we, uh, of course, promote the show. Uh, or maybe you subscribe on iTunes or maybe you subscribe in some other uh, aggregator that uh, handles podcasts. So that's about it. It's pretty straight ahead. I've kind of gotten into a routine where it's uh, usually, like I said, I do it during the day and I didn't happen to manage to pull that off this time. So here I am, well after 10 o'clock with a strained voice from talking all day with my kids and hanging out. So there it is. 
That's how the show's done. So uh, I hope you found that somewhat entertaining or somewhat interesting. And I'm sure, you know, everybody has probably got questions like, why are you using that? Or why are you using this? I don't know. I experiment. I test. Uh, see what works. See what doesn't work. See what I like. And, you know, the show over time changes uh, tonality-wise as I go through different plugins, try different methods, and which I'm always, always trying. But uh, right now, this is... Uh, this has been the the setup for some time. So so that's it. All right. Well, I hope that satisfies. Let's move on. Chris Dugan here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast and thank you for taking your time out of your your day today. You're you're a fairly new father and you're a busy engineer and finding time to sit down and talk on a podcast is not always possible. Yeah. 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 But so worth it. <laughs> so just for the uh, audience's uh, information, let's start at the current point in time where you're at now. And, and you correct me if I'm wrong, essentially you are, are you not the chief engineer at Jingle Town? Yes. Yeah. I'm uh, there is another guy there who sort of, or recently has taken over my spot because uh, I'm, I'm working on a project currently, but yeah, that is my, uh, that's my title as of right now, <laughs> for sure. Okay. You have a history of working with Green Day, who owns Jingletown. That's right, yeah. How did that relationship start? The Jingletown relationship or the Green Day relationship? Uh, both. Um, and are they one and the same? Uh, that's sort of separate from me, from my perspective, but um, okay. the band bought the studio back in, I think, 2007 it was. Uh, it was uh, Studio 880, and uh, the owner John was uh, was sort of getting out of the business and wanted to go into other stuff. We were in there actually doing pre-production for a record, and it sort of was like, "Well, this place is going up for sale. Wouldn't this be cool?" We sort of taken it over, made it our clubhouse. We had motorcycles and go karts. All this fun stuff was happening there. I think the guys thought about it quite a bit and thought, "Well, we could get into it. Why not? Let's give it a shot." And they did that. And sort of made it their own sort of more private spot. We moved like some people into the business offices and sort of made it a home base, consolidated a bunch of storage, this sort of stuff. And then uh, went on to make a record and then decided while we were out on tour to open it up to the public. And so from then until now, that's what it's been. It's been open. And uh, it wasn't a big grand opening. It was sort of it started with helping out friends, bands, and buddies, and family members sort of thing. And and then slowly, it sort of picked up. And yeah, and we're doing good today. And we've got two rooms open. And uh, there's a third room there that's on a lock on a long lockout. But that's where it's at now. So yeah. So that's that's as you were with the Green Day camp and that's right. relationship to, to that studio. How did you get involved with Green Day? Because that seems to be you know a major factor in your life. Yeah, I uh, I started a studio with a good friend of mine, Willie Samuels, who runs a Trilogy over there, right? Him and oh, yeah. I, yeah, him and I sort of uh, came up together. We had our own spot out in Pittsburgh. It's still there. It's called New Tone. We were doing a ton of local bands, and Willie was in a band with a bass player, this guy Bill, who knew Billy, and was in a side project band with Billy from Green Day. Billy Joe had started a studio, had built this really cool studio in his basement, started recording bands, and uh, one day needed an engineer and asked Bill if he knew anybody. Bill called us, and I was available, so I ran out there and 
and uh, recorded a punk band with him. And then he called me back. We did more. And then we started doing demos and just sort of went from there. I was sort of his go-to guy, I guess, uh, early on. And and we built a good relationship, good working relationship. And uh, ended up, you know, cutting demos for the band. And then that just progressed into records. So Interesting. Yeah. How long has that been going on? Like, when, when did that, what year did that start? Uh, I want to say the late 90s, 98 or 99 is when I started. So Green Day had already established themselves at that point. Pretty much, you know, most people knew who they were. Dookie oh, had yeah. come out, I think, uh, a couple other records. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah, they had just, uh, in fact, I remember talking to Billy once. Uh, they were just going into the studio to do Warning, which they did at 880. I remember him saying something along the lines. He's like, yeah, our producer just told us about this thing called Pro Tools. I think we're going to use Pro Tools. <laughs> And I was like, cool, yeah, I know about Pro Tools. I've heard of this stuff, you know? This is like when it was first getting getting to become something, you know? And that turned out to be a warning, yeah. So you're, basically your current role is ch- chief engineer at, uh, at Jingletown. And do you travel at all with the band for any kind of live recording situations? Yeah, I have. I've done a couple tours with them. I got an offer to do some video work for them. They said, you know, we want to sort of film stuff. We want to document the tour, this sort of thing. I I started with them on the road in that that capacity, just just doing filming. Of course, when the idea of recording came in, you know, I stepped up and took care of all that for them, and you know, sort of started wearing a couple different hats on the road, mm-hmm. doing a lot of uh, photography, video. I got to direct uh, a live performance recording sort of thing. So I, I ended up sort of falling into these other sort of gigs with them that, uh, you know, were, were other little, you know, avenues of, of actual work that I never thought I'd see myself in. And it was really cool. I ended up really loving video and film. It was a lot of fun. So, so yeah, I do, I do go out on the road with them. And then when we're at home, I'm in the studio with them. So, Oh, that's great. So let's go back a bit to the studio that you and Willie Samuels have. That's still running. It's, it's been running for a number of years, if, if I've heard correctly. That's right. Yeah. I, th- I, I want to say I think we opened in 95, maybe, sort of officially, I guess. We started recording people uh, for money <laughs> back then, I think. And uh, it's a big warehouse out there. And uh, it started out as just a, a place for my band to rehearse. And we split it with another band. And uh, my band sort of, I don't know, I think it was taking a break or fizzling out or one of the two. And, you know, I had a little eight track reel to reel and uh we were already sort of making demos and recording ourselves and the band we were sharing with needed something recorded so i sort of started i ran into to willie he had an eight track and we sort of put our stuff together and and started a studio and and then we sort of asked those guys to leave nicely and they they left <laughs> my band broke up and so we had the whole place to ourselves and and uh just started recording friends and so that progressed it was great we had a lot of fun. We learned a lot. And now we both have other jobs and we have two guys in there running it now that are killing it right now. They're doing great. So Interesting. So how does that work with two guys working in there? Do they just pay you a, um, a chunk of what they make or like what's, what's, how does that relationship structure? It, you know, it's interesting. That place to us is just a labor of love. It, it's, uh, it was like our first, like we built the walls in there and <laughs> We inhaled all the dust and sawdust. It's sort of like this place where where we grew up. So, you know, the fact that it's just running is all that matters to Willie and I. And uh, we sort mm. of just let them cover the cost of the place and do what they do. It was, um, which is how, you know, Willie and I sort of ran it too. We were never really out, you know, as you probably know, you, 
it's hard to make a lot of money owning a studio because you're keep investing no. back in and you're repairing things. <laughs> yeah. What a great business concept. Uh, so, you know, for us, it was always just like, we would just do it to get by. And that's how we see it now. It's like, if we can just cover the rent and those guys can make their money on it, go for it, you know? And that's, and that's how we run it. So. Well, that's cool. Do you still own all the gear that's there? Yeah. It's all sort of, there's different pieces or, you know, mine, some are Willie's, some of those guys, they brought in their own stuff. So it's a little collective sort of vibe. Do you ever go back? You know, I haven't there? in a really long time. Uh, I actually don't even know. I just finally got a new set of keys to the place. Uh, but I haven't, uh, I haven't been back in a while. I do want to go back though. It's got a great drum room. <laughs> I really like the room there. And this is out in Pittsburgh. Not Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, yeah. listeners. This is yeah. uh, Pittsburgh, California, which is uh, east of Oakland. So, did you you grew up in the in in California, or are you a transplant? Yeah, grew up in California. My folks are San Francisco natives, born there and raised there, and then uh, sort of moved east. So, I moved out. I I lived in Pleasant Hill as a kid, so that was out that area that way, mm. and then uh, later moved out to Antioch, which is even farther. Sort of grew up out there. And then made my way back out this way, so to speak, but stopping in Oakland. And uh, so, yeah, Bay Area my whole life. Two, two vastly different experiences, running your own studio and then, you know, pretty much going to work for Green Day and working at, at Jingle Town. How has your experience with New Tone informed what you do, whether it's technical or business-wise now? Are there lessons that you, that you carry with you to this day that you learned from running New tone with Willie? Yeah, I mean, there's, I'll speak for myself. I learned really just how to run a session by working there. I mean, down to that, down to the most basic things like that. Interacting with a band and, you know, learning sort of that, sort of the stuff you're not really taught, you know, even though him mm -hmm. and I both went to school, uh, learned about recording, learned about this other stuff. There's that whole other side of actually sitting in a room with people and, you know, an argument breaking out, how to diffuse a situation, how to, keep people creative, how to keep people, you know, calm and, and creative, you know, instead of vibe, all that sort of stuff. Like we picked up, I would say, and the business side of it sort of kind of made its way in there as well. It's like, you know, there did come a point in time where him and I were like, well, I'll speak for myself. I, you know, I was, I was barely getting by. So it started to, you know, get to a point where like, okay, I, I need to actually start making money here. So I'm going to have to charge my friends some real money <laughs> to record. And that was tough. That was a tough thing, you know, when you're young and you're like, hey, um, I actually need you to pay me now. You can't give me beer and pizza. I'm going to try to make a living at this. And that was tough, but uh, the landlord won't accept the kind of beer you're offering. That's right. That's right. <laughs> These cans we're leaving around, he doesn't like them. So <laughs> that is a tough transition to make if you're young. It is. If you're yeah. where you like, you're doing something, and then I don't know. For some, I think it's that point of, oh man, I don't want to sell out and start charging my friends. And it, there's this kind of idealism that that comes into play there. That's kind of a a first step into that world and it's it can be frustrating yeah and alienating at the same time oh absolutely yeah but that's one of those things i mean when you when you're able to finally do that you know you've you've sort of graduated in a sense you've you know now you're a businessman and that's okay to be that and i'll never forget some advice a friend gave me once i was recording him i was having this conversation i'm like you know it's i just you know i i just had to charge some friends this is awkward and he's like you know he said to me he goes um 
you know, your true friends will find a way to pay you because they're your friends and they understand. I mean, everyone has jobs. And, uh, you know, you said you're lucky enough to have a job that you love. <laughs> I paint houses. I'm not really thrilled about that, but I do it for money. And I, you know, I sat with that advice for a long time. And it's true. Help me, uh, you know, help me feel okay about stuff. You sort of have to be able to do that. So vastly different world working with Green Day. I mean, when you're working with a band that's on that level, there's a whole lot of different uh, experiences, pressures, expectations of people, maybe, and tell me if, if you think this is true, maybe uh, some unspoken things that you just got to pick up on. Or am I wrong about that, that particular aspect of it? Are, are, is there a lot of good communication there? Or sometimes is, can things be a little cryptic with the various people you deal with? I mean, these guys are pretty open about stuff. They're all, they're all really down to earth dudes, really funny guys. So it's, you know, we'll, we'll sit around and just, they'll talk about all sorts of stuff and yeah, nothing, nothing too, too strange. I mean, you know, if anyone knows, I mean, if, if you have like repeat clients, um, you start to learn who these people are and how they work and their worth ethics and that sort of thing. And I think if anything, I've sort of figured out their workflow and, you know, and, uh, you know, who shows up when and who likes to work at what time and who is their best at what time of the day, that sort of thing. And so I think if anything, I've sort of picked up that stuff along the way and, and sort of know the vibe. So, um, yeah, I think, I think what's interesting though, too, I will say is that, I mean, in the very beginning, I, I, you know, I ran into, you know, some things I'm like, okay, I, I, I'm not supposed to really do that, I guess that's odd or something, you know, uh, <laughs> But I think we've all sort of grown. We've we've all developed this really good relationship together. So it's been a long time that we've worked together. Um, I've never really thought about it, actually, since you've asked me now. But I think we've all sort of, we all know each other. We all know how to get along and stuff. So Now, what about when other people come in from outside that inner circle? You know, people from label, I don't know, maybe even, I don't know how close you are with management, but... Other people that come in, producers and such, is, does it get complicated in that respect? Not with management, but, uh, you know, someone who might jump into to my world, the studio world, like a producer or something, depending on who it is. And it's it's always been, uh, you know, Rob Cavallo for the most part. We did one record with Butch Vig, uh, and Butch was uh, such an easygoing guy that he just, <laughs> he, he sat down and we all just got along just fine. So... Uh, I've only worked in those two scenarios with the guys and, uh, with, uh, Rob, they, you know, have known him, uh, you know, from day one, I shouldn't say from day one of their band, but from their first big record from like 94. And, uh, and those guys were thick as thieves, you know, they were, they're really good friends. So they have their own working relationship and rapport. And so that's always been good. We've worked with some outside people on like, say a one-off sort of thing. I was fortunate enough to go to Abbey Road uh, while we were on tour, which was great. And we hooked up with U2 and did this song for a, uh, for the Katrina benefit. And uh, that was a, a really cool time. I met Andrew Sheps there. Greg Fiedelman was there. And um, Rick Rubin was producing. There was a moment when you're sort of thrown in where there's... <laughs> And this is a different moment. I mean, not all bands sort of get to experience this all the time or are in this situation in a studio, but here's another band, two other engineers and a new producer. And we're all meeting the producer and engineer for the first time. The bands have met before, but we're all working together at the same time. 
I would think that would be the one time I could think of where things were a little odd at first because it was such a weird situation. You know, it was odd. There's two bands set up in one big room and, and we're all sort of getting to know each other and we've got to write and record this song. And so it was a little, you know, getting to know everyone and then up, up and rolling it went and it was great and took off from there. And then uh, by the end it was, we were all sitting down eating dinner and having drinks and, what a strange moment. I mean, I mean, at some point I realized that, you know, I mean, I, I realize now and have for many years that, you know, famous people are just famous people. They are people. And once you kind of get past that fame and you just kind of deal one on one, it becomes a little more, you know, easy to get your head around. But I got to say, man, walking into that situation uh, where you have Green Day and you 2 that's one level. And then if, if you had never met Andrew, and if you're a fan of Andrew's in any respect, I mean, there's, do you ever get intimidated? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I felt like the smallest little speck, uh, you know, I felt like an ant that day, those two days. I just felt so small. And I, uh, you know, I, I did help out. I mean, I, I helped sort of do things, but I felt so dumb doing it. <laughs> I had I had the guys going, hey, can you mic up the drums the way you mic up the drums? And I'm like, of course but felt so dumb setting up the mics going, are these guys like just, you know, looking at me like, what is this guy doing? You know, sort of thing. And cause I, <laughs> these guys are such heavy hitters. And, but at the same time, when I look back, everyone was so nice and so generous and it's, it's what you just said. It's when you forget about the fame for a second and go, this is a guy who does what I do. We both do the same thing. We've done this before. He's done it more than me, but we know the drill. Let's get it rolling and get it set up and go. If you can sort of slip into that mindset, I think that's the important thing. I didn't do it that day because I was blown away. I was the fact that I was in Abbey Road alone. I was just sitting there, like on cloud nine. That had me going. I was just standing in that room. So I was, I couldn't keep myself cool. I don't think the whole time. <laughs> but, but it was a it was a great experience. And um, you know, I met Andrew that way. Andrew's a great dude. And, yeah, I mean Andrew's totally like down to earth. He's just the most regular person on the planet. But yeah, I mean that's a lot of a lot of like you say Abbey Road, Green Day, which you had a uh, you know you were kind of had the upper upper hand there because you you were friends with them for a long time and you've worked with them for a long time. But then to throw in you two and Andrew Sheps and Rick Rubin, <laughs> it's like oh my god. Yeah, take a deep breath. Let's just get through the day. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm trying to imagine you're your, your functioning in that environment. And it's like, how do you determine who's in charge? It's that's, like, okay, is, is, is Rick in charge? Okay, fine. There's <laughs> a couple engineers here. And, you know, do you defer to Andrew? Does he defer to you? How do you, how does it work? It's interesting. So such a, again, such a weird, rare instance. But I think this whole thing came about with Bono talking to Billy saying, hey, would you want to team up and do this thing? And I think that's where the whole thing started. And to make matters even more odd, I should preface this story. This makes it even sort of something else to chuckle at now looking back. But when we showed up, uh, we rolled in with a truck full of gear, you know, just doing the normal thing. You roll in with all your stuff. Um, I think Andrew and Greg and um, Rick had just been told about it maybe that morning. Whereas we knew a week before we had rescheduled, you know, sort of planned our tour and sort of worked it into when we were coming through town to sort of take a day or two off to do this. 
And I think Bono sort of let it slip that morning. At least that's what I remember hearing. Because (laughs) Greg, I remember saying something along the lines of, you know, we were supposed to be, I think what was happening too, let me preface this, was Rick was working with you too on a couple songs. And I think they were trying to, he did a couple songs for their record. And I think they were trying out each other. (laughs) So, oh, by the way, Rick and everyone, Green Day's showing up today with all their crap and we're going to record a song. And that's what happened. (laughs) So, so to answer your question of who's in charge, it was pretty funny trying to watch people figure out who was in charge. And, uh, um, it was, you know, it started out with the band sort of trying to figure out what to play. And, and I think Rick sort of settled in pretty well and he, you know, he helped out and took over basically, I think. And, um, it, it, it found its way. I mean, you remember too, I mean, you're talking about bands who have done this a million times. Mm-hmm. And engineers who have, I'll speak for those guys, they have been doing it a while, longer than I. So everything eventually falls into its pace and place and, and its flow. And it finally did. And uh, mm-hmm. we were able to do it in a couple of days, I think it was, if I'm not mistaken. So <laughs> I'm sure you found yourself over the years, you know, working with the guys in Green Day uh, in many a situation, maybe not as overwhelming as that, but maybe situations that, you know, you kind of just kind of stop for a moment and go, wow, I'm sitting here in this room with the following people. Oh yeah. You know, to sit side by side with Butch Vig or Rob Cavallo for that matter. Yeah. uh, For a lot of people is, um, an unattainable dream. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, both Rob and, and Butch too. I mean, they were, they were, uh, I've been a fan of Butch for a really long time, a long time. And so in order, you know, to, to be able to sit there and, you know, we played him some mixes of some songs where he was really into, you know, he's like, why don't we just put this out? This could be it. It's mixed so well. And I, and, and he would look at me and say that. And I went, Oh my God, that, that made my ear, you know, he just <laughs> said that about my mix. Whoa, cool. This guy knows what's up. Um, it was a crappy mix, but maybe he was being polite. I don't know. But, but even still, it's like, you know, and watching Rob work, you know, Rob and Billy have a really good sort of working relationship. So it was really neat to watch him, sort of, uh, you know, pull stuff out of Billy and, 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 you know, sort of help mold stuff or just help, you know, get over a block of some sorts. And I'd never seen that before. You know, I came from working with just these bands who came in to just crank out fast, crappy music sometimes. And, and to watch this sort of was on another level. It was really eye-opening for me. Well, I hope you're enjoying the interview here with Chris Dugan here on the Working Class Audio Podcast, but we are going to take a sponsor break here with our friends over at Audio-Technica, and I just want to uh, tell you a little bit about the AE2500, which is not a new mic. It's been out for quite a while, but it's a, it's a mic, I think, that deserves some attention. It's, imagine, uh, well, it's a kick drum mic, so you don't have to imagine that, but it's, imagine two microphones in one, and what I mean by that is, is that there's actually two elements side by side in there. One's a dynamic, one's a condenser, and they're positioned in such a way that uh, the phase relationship is solid, so you don't have to worry about that. And it can take one hell of a beating in terms of SPL. It's got an 80 hertz high pass filter switch and a 10 dB pad on the condenser element. You know, the idea here is, is that the dynamic is going to deliver more of an aggressive attack on the of the beater while the condenser is going to capture more of the round tonalities of the, the bass drum shell. And they include a, uh, a cable with it, which is a five pin XLR female that breaks out to two, three pin XLR male connectors. 
and uh, obviously gives you separate control over each and then allows you to supply phantom power to the condenser mic. So pretty cool. So uh, looks like list price is, or retail price is, as they say, is, is $769. And looks like the average price I'm pulling up here on the internet is $549. So, you know, if you're looking for something a little bit different uh, in a bass drum mic, give this a shot and see what you think about this. This is the uh, Audio-Technica AE2500, which I'm sure you can pick up at your local pro audio dealer. There you go. All right, let's get back into it here with Chris Dugan on the Working Class Audio Podcast. You've got an 11-month-old daughter. How has that changed your view of everything that you're doing in the world of recording? Has it philosophically changed your your thoughts at all? Yeah, I've been thinking about that lately. You know, it's, it's sort of chilled me out a little bit. <laughs> Whereas... Uh, I was, you know, going into it, I was like, man, I got to make sure that, you know, I keep, you know, my work up. I'm going to, you know, throw my name out there. I'm really horrible about self-promotion and that kind of stuff. And maybe I should start doing that. I got to make sure that I can provide a future for this little being, you know. And um, But really what's happened is I've sort of kicked back and now you sort of see things. I don't know. Everything's just a little bit more chill. I can actually sort of Going into work, even in something really, really important to me, like making a record, um, I go in just a little bit more calm now, and I can sort of um, assess the situation faster. I don't take it. I think one problem I had as a young guy was I was I took everything so importantly, so important, so seriously, and I would stew on the smallest little detail to make sure that that hi hat sounded just right, you know, and. You know, you know this as a drummer. You can sit and get this, the best snare sound in the world. When you pile on all these other instruments, that snare sound actually sounds a little different because it's trying to make its way through by other stuff. So these sort of, you know, I, I've, I've lessened all that intense approach uh, to my sessions. And I'm not saying I don't pay attention to detail because I'll always do that. But it's just a little bit more chill now because I think I have something way more important right now in my life. <laughs> that I have to like pay attention to. And, uh, and it's helped me actually. I, I enjoy it. My workflow now when I go to work and when I record other bands is, uh, is pretty enjoyable. It's fun. And I'm just on a different, uh, uh, maybe I don't know how I'd word it. Just it's a little bit more chill, I guess, you know, you're possibly in a different spot. Yeah. Yeah. Mentally, philosophically. I, I recognize what you're saying. I totally identify with what you're saying as, as a father. And, it's interesting because I think, and I, you know, while I, I will say that kids are not for everybody, it can, you know, right. if you don't think you should have kids, don't have kids. But <clears throat> it, it definitely gives you a very wide view of everything. I think it's less me, 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 right? I mean, you grow up, you grow up so, you know, sort of thinking, okay, I got to do this. I have to do this for myself. I got to plan a thing. I got to do this, take care of myself which we all should do. But I think for me, having a kid now, it's not about me anymore at all. <laughs> it's, it's about her and, you know, my family and sort of like, oh, let's make this whole thing, make sure this is taken care of. It's not me anymore. It's all of this, you know, over here. And, and I think it really cool. strengthens your position in the studio too, because you, you take that nurturing kind of 
uh, attitude and try to, okay, well, let me, let me take care of this artist and make sure our session's taken care of and I'm not, you know, totally hyper-focused on hi-hats. Right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. um, you're in an enviable position because you're employed by an artist who has already gained a major foothold and cemented their, their spot in musical history, which gives you some opportunities to branch out into other areas too, because of, you know, you are now tied to, to, to Green Day and the people, you know, you know, people like Rob Cavallo and that can only open doors. Is there a certain way that you like to treat it or carry yourself in the context of the organization? Yeah, I think, um, Back from the early days, I think I was always just happy to be there. And, you know, the role of an assistant is sort of supposed to be that fly on the wall sort of person and not necessarily speak up. You know, there's no reason to give everyone your your opinion on things. That's sort of how I took it, even though I was more, you know, this engineer role. So I just stayed quiet. I stayed cool, tried to help out in any capacity I could and just, you know, stayed quiet was reliable. At one time, I remember saying something along the lines of, man, that would be cool if you did this. And that was me getting excited being young and someone in the room going like, you know what? We don't care what you think. <laughs> and, and that wasn't Green Day. That was someone else. That was another band once. And I remember that I, I took that, went home that night, went, okay, yeah, I have to make sure that I'm there to help. You know, my role is just to help people. And that will sometimes include just sitting there being quiet and push and record and answer when people want to know your your opinion that sort of thing and 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 uh and if someone says hey that sounds weird well let's fix it let's take care of it that sort of thing just being that sort of fixer guy helper guy and uh you know i was just sort of a quiet person for a long time i think i'm still quiet i've got a, a pretty calm demeanor in the studio i think for the most part when we get out of there and we goof off i show my true colors, I guess. But I always try to keep it as cool and calm <laughs> on my end so everyone else can, you know, do their own thing, you know? So Yeah, that that, that kind of hurts when you learn those lessons of people, you know, telling you to shut your mouth. Or That's right. Call you on your shit. It's, yeah. it, it, it like, it, it's like somebody just kind of put like a, I don't know, uh, an icicle down your, your, your gut. And you're kind of like, oh. Yeah, you okay. get humbled pretty quick. Because you've been in bands, and you know what it's like. I've been in bands. I used to play drums, and I would sit there and go, let's do that part again, or that part sucks. You know, you learn how to, in a musical sense, speak your mind, and, and sometimes it's valuable. And then all of a sudden, when you're on this other chair over here, but you're around musical ideas, yeah, you, it's probably best that you don't. This is someone else's thing, you know? It's not you. And, and so I think I was sort of, teetering on those lines there, you know? I, you know, I got to be honest, man. I ask myself sometimes, maybe I could be more successful if I'd keep my mouth shut. <laughs> really? I'm, I, I say that with total seriousness. No, I mean, no, no, no. We need I, you I talking. That, Come on. Well, I mean, it works in the context of a podcast. But, you, know, <laughs> you know, if I, maybe it's in my, in my own nature, but like if I am in the studio with somebody and I just see something just as a potential derailment to the situation, I'm the first to go, um, yep, um, yep, yep. This yep. is me raising my hand for the audience that can't hear it. <laughs> I'll be the first to go. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that you should reconsider doing that. Cause, uh, this is going to just totally blow the budget. 
or <laughs> this is this is going to just I like that. Dera- That's derail, I like blowing the budget or- line. That one's good. <laughs> that one that one's I might I might use that one, the blowing the budget one. I, I I tend to blow it by saying something like, you know, this this, this part here it's more suckier than this part preceding it. Maybe less sucky here will get us to a better plateau where we achieve over suckness. I don't know. I, I end up blowing it. So I just stop we have, talking. We're trying to achieve minimum suckness. Here, That's people. right. Yeah. <laughs> Does that frustrate you to sit and be quiet or are you just, are you, are you, you comfortable in that role? Uh, in the role with the band, I'm I'm con- totally comfortable with it because I have so many other cool things like an engineer does. Like there is that whole side of like making sure that everything sounds super kick ass and just neat and juicy and the drums are punchy. Like that I mean that's that's a lot to to be in charge of and and I'm constantly that stuff's always going through my mind every take. So, you know, that's a lot to do. There I, I record other bands who want me to produce them and in that in those situations it's it's fine and I and I and I love to talk and I love to give my opinion and, and I will in those situations when I'm asked to, you know. But uh sort of the the, the last person I want to be is that guy again that, that that happened to me so long ago. It's I I just don't want to speak out of turn unless someone really wants to know my opinion. And I and I have clients uh that i work really well with where they they trust my opinion you know and and i think after you've been doing it a certain amount of time you start to hear stuff you start to know stuff and you you know just sort of the easy stuff of like up oh, that's probably not gonna work because of this and um maybe try this and one thing i watched rob do once is he did this thing where you know he i think sort of falls into if, if there's a, a problem with a song or, or just maybe you know we need to go to another spot or maybe we've hit a wall he sort of falls into that problem and works it out with the artist together in this really cool sort of teamwork way which i always thought was brilliant rather than sort of separating yourself from the problem being this guy over here going well that's wrong because of this he just sort of immersed himself in it and sort of everybody walked through it together and um if that makes any kind of sense. I don't know if I'm making it sense. It does. I'm just trying yeah. to get a sense of how does he phrase that? How does he, how does he immerse himself on, on being in a part of the, the solution as opposed to just being the guy that points out the problems? Yeah, you know, I think it's sitting down and sort of playing the song together, sort of going through analyzing chords, analyzing parts, and sort of talking about them and, you know, pulling apart like, Okay, so where are we ending on this chord? So we're here on this D. Um, do we go to, do, does the resolve a G here? What, what would this sound like? And just walks through all these sort of different options together. And um, I don't know if that helps, but that that's what I sort of watched happen once. And um, it was a little bit different from that from that standpoint of here, I'll show you how to do it. It was more along the lines of, well, hey, let's work this out and let's let's do this. And because there is that one thing that um, when you are in those situations where where someone's saying, what do you think? What should I do? What would you do? Well, I, I would pull from my bag of experience and I'd say, well, I'd probably do this. And if somebody does that, but you don't ever really get to hear their interpretation or maybe their fix to it or maybe what they can come up with, you, you're sort of, I think, you're not giving them a fair chance. And back to this thing with Rob where Rob sort of helped the bands sort of find their way 
and they developed what was going to be the next part to this song. And sort of, it wasn't about him saying, what you need to do is, you know, throw a piano here, you know, go to this chord and, and, you know, you know, change the time signature or whatever. It was, it was them and they found their way and it ended up being beautiful. So I've always sort of strived to try to do that when I can, you know, I think that's the ultimate way in the production world. If you're going to be, if you're going to produce and give those sort of advice is, is to try to help the artist sort of find it and create it, you know, even if it means sending everyone home for the day, I don't know, or stopping and working on something else or sending the singer out to the other room, go, you know, maybe you plant a seed. Maybe that's what it is. And, and that person goes and lets it stew on it for a little bit. I wanted to ask you about um, any, obviously I'm not looking for, you know, specific numbers here. I'm just curious, like your relationship financially with Green Day, is it a salary based job or is it an hourly based job? And how does that affect when you're working with other bands? Just the structure, is it, you know, do you receive a paycheck or do you, do you have to bill and is it? Yeah. So, uh, in the early days I would, I would, uh, I was an independent contractor okay. and, uh, and I'd been that forever, you know, bill you weekly or monthly, however it turned out, however long I was working. And, um, and then at some point, I think when I went on tour, they were like, okay, come on a tour. We're going to put you on payroll sort of thing. I sort of remained on payroll because when we got off tour, we jumped back into the studio and my job title just switched. So yeah, I was getting a, a monthly paycheck. Okay. That sort of thing. And, and I mean, ultimately it was salary. Yeah. Salary based. Okay. And then we came off the road and, um, took a break, but they wanted to keep the studio going. So I just sort of worked my way over there and, and started helping out at the studio and, uh, and working at the studio. And then sure enough, you know, the guys would start recording again and I'd get pulled from that and just go over here to this room over here and work with them. And it was fun working just at the studio because I, I would get my old clients back. Some people would want to come back and, and work with me. So I get to, you know, work with other people and new people and, and that sort of thing. And uh, I always try to jump at any chance I can. When I do have the time, I do that. So you you remain on salary, but it doesn't affect your ability to work with other bands. Right, right. Okay, okay. You're when just I have the time. They just put you, it's like, hey, we're going to go on tour. Come with us to do this. We're going to make a new record. Right. Let's do this. They just move right. you around to where your talents are needed. Right, right. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. How often do you work with other bands? Um I was I just did a record with uh, some friends of mine called Toy Guitar. It was an EP actually. It's only six songs. I, I do it when I can fit in, fit in the time. You know, we're in the studio now, uh working on a Green Day record, just about to finish it up. And prior to that, when I was um out at Jingletown for a good portion of time, I was, you know, I was trying to work uh, as much as I could. A lot of weekends and, you know, the drill evenings. It's not many, unfortunately. But it's, yeah, I mean, you've got to, you've got to, I mean, essentially you have a full-time job with Green Day. Therefore, you have to juggle in these other, these other bands and you have to juggle your family. That's right. Yeah. How do you handle the work-life balance thing with the family? Doesn't your wife have an association with the studio as well? Yeah, that's right. She manages the studio. Oh, that's, okay. That's actually where we met was uh, uh, back in 2006-ish. Uh, she was working for 880. And uh, so, yeah, so she's there. That's one of the perks to being there is, you know, we get to see each other. We work together. We get to argue about work stuff. <laughs> but uh, 
so that's kind of cool. Um, now with the little one, it's, it's different. So it's, it's sort of like, I got to rush to get home and, and we have to sort of plan stuff, you know, just got to think ahead now with that extra little person involved. So it's, it's more planning as you probably remember, uh, if you were going to do a gig or if you're going to record, there's just someone else there's, it's takes precedence now over that scheduling. <laughs> and so the last couple of things I did, I tried to do during the day, if I could, um, try to get my evenings free, but I worked out and, uh, I was able to do some work at night. You know, you got to mix at night anyway, at least for me, I do. So yeah, do you, do you do, uh, much work at home? <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. I built this little spot down here and where I'm sitting right now. And thanks to a lot of tips that you have on your website about mixing in the box. You helped me, you helped, uh, my conversion to in the box stuff, by the oh way. Oh my God. Wow. I wanted to thank you for that. Yeah. But yeah, so that's that's what I got down here. Yeah, you know, it's it's a different game with the kids, just in the term in, in terms of making the adapting the audio around the family in, in yeah. the best way you can. Do you have family that lives in uh, the Bay Area? Well, actually, yeah, you said you grew up here, so I assume yeah. you have you know uh, family. Here. Yeah, my folks, my folks moved uh, farther east to retire out. Uh, East of here in the in the mountains, up to a nice little community out there, and and my mother in law lives pretty close, so we have family, and we can uh, we've got it sort of a built in babysitter system working for us right now. That's that has been a godsend, I guess you could say. Yeah, <laughs> it's been awesome. It's really helped us out. Well, it's funny too when as as they get older and like you know my kids in elementary, both kids in elementary school, and like sometimes I'll have to we I, we don't have any family that live nearby, so we're always kind of reaching out to people or, or the other parents. And sometimes you have to get into the conversation, which is always kind of strange. Like if you're an audio or music industry parent and yeah. uh, you have to, maybe you get into this conversation, what do you do? Yeah. I noticed that yeah. you, you know, it's kind of unusual because at our school, I'm one of very few dads that are around like all the time. Like I go on the field trips Oh, cool. I'm, I do the drop-offs, the pickups. And in the early days, I remember there was this one mom that gave me this kind of odd look. And she was like, do you work? And I was like, what? Like, yeah, I yeah. work. I just do this other job that just happens not to be, you know, I'm not a hedge fund manager or a real estate yeah. developer or... And it was just kind of an odd position. So over time, as the parents, which really is mostly the mom, started, you know, find themselves in email threads with me over some school-related thing, and they'd see like you know the 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 whatever the bottom part of your your email, and they I'm sure a few of them have clicked on it to go, who is this guy? Yeah. Why right, is this guy right. all over? How come does this guy work? What does he do? Does he sit home and smoke pot and watch cartoons? Then oh yeah. Then you know, uh, then I would find myself in these conversations where the parents would be like, So you you kind of do a music recording thing. How how does that work? Oh yeah. And you're like, Oh, okay, all right. Well, let me explain. And yeah, they're always yep. like, Oh wow, that's 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 different. I'm like, Yeah, it's not as stable as the fact that, you know, you or your husband are lawyers or doctors or whatever, but that's right. Yeah. It's, it's just a weird place to be in, especially like, like I feel at home talking with you about stuff, but I kind of have to, like, I feel like when I'm talking to some parents, I'm like, um, yeah, <laughs> I just yeah. feel a little more guarded, I guess. 
Oh, for sure. Yeah. All of our neighbors, like, you know, I, I noticed your home, you know, during the day a lot of times. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I am home. I work from home. What do you do? Oh, I record bands. Huh. And they sort of skeptical. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I wonder if that's really a job, you know, sort of vibe. Right. Like, but yeah, see, you got you had the ultimate trump card, really, because you can you can throw out the Green Day card and go, yeah, I work for Green Day. Yeah. Most parents know who Green Day is, right? Unless right. you live yeah. under a rock. I yeah, I, I guess I, I I should probably use that card more often. Yeah, <laughs> otherwise they're gonna think you you're like you know you got some like uh, Breaking Bad situation going on there in the home. You're running a meth lab. See, that's what I'm hoping they're thinking, to be honest with you. I'd rather have, like, those sort of suspicions because then you look cooler. <laughs> He's probably, you know, building a robot or something at home. I'm cool with that. Yeah, it's like the Tom Waits song. What's he building in there? That's right. right. Yes, exactly. Well, hey, man, this has been fun. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming on the show and, and talking and telling us about your world. Sometimes I start to think, oh, man, I hope we're not going to start running into – things where everybody starts sounding the same but it's everybody's situation is so different and there's such particular things to learn about the different worlds and just to hear you tell us about your world with you know the green day guys and, and jingle town and uh, you know being a dad in the context of all that is really interesting to me so i appreciate you coming on and and sharing that with us well thanks for having me matt it was awesome i'll talk to you soon man sounds good see you all right buddy bye, bye, -bye. There it is, Chris Dugan on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hope you enjoyed that. It was great to have Chris have a chat with us. He's such a nice guy and really enjoyable to talk to. So I got a kick out of that, so I hope you did as well. We are at a time we have to thank everybody, so we have to start with Cliff Truesdale for that music and Chuck Smith for the voiceover and Cole Williams, of course, for his help with social media and YouTube and all that. And I want to thank our sponsors, Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. And thanks again for listening. I appreciate it. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.